0: Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue our study in the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and our text this morning will be verses 23 to 26. 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three to 26. Paul writes for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Let's just go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we go through this text this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word, we thank you for its richness, we thank you for its clarity, and so this morning I pray that your Holy Spirit would again be our teacher, we know that nothing good will be done outside of his work, and so we pray for his illumination this morning, his conviction in our hearts, that we might be again Conform more to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, have a better understanding of what you expect for us. And we pray this all for your glory and for your praise in your name. Amen. So we're really partway through a section here where we started last week and we said that the proper, uh, we should say, the practice, the proper practice of the Lord's Supper would lead to unity. And we saw last week that the Corinthians had perverted the Lord's Supper. And far from it being something that unified the church, it was something that actually was bringing and tearing the church apart. And we saw that there was divisions within the church. And of course, we understand that God uses divisions in the church and in fact he says this is how he brings people through testing so we know who is who is right who is holy who is righteous and even who is saved but ultimately unity is to be the hallmark of the church we are to have love for one another And one of the things that we are supposed to be doing when we come together for the Lord's Supper is to celebrate our unity together. It is something that is to to take away, as it were, all distinctions. There's neither male nor female, rich or free, bond bond or free, male or female. All those distinctions are put away, social distinctions, everything as we meet at the foot of the cross. But for the Corinthians they had done the exact opposite It had really become a a place where the rich were showing off Where there was certainly social and economic divisions within the church And instead of equality, instead of unity There was those who were actually hungry while others were drunk And then they were shaming those who had nothing And it led Paul to ask that rhetorical question or do you despise the church of God maybe it's sarcasm I'm not sure do you do you despise the church of God because you are trampling on the thing that should bring us unity and so the proper practice of the Lord's Supper should lead to unity well, now we move on to this next section and we could really say that the, the proper practice of the Lord's Supper proclaims the significance of Christ's crucifixion. Next week, we will talk about it, that It actually, the proper practice of the Lord's Supper prevents divine judgment or discipline. But this morning, we, as we look at this, we, as we come to this passage, we will again see that the, that the contrast between what Paul is laying out here and what the Corinthians were doing. Now, it's interesting because as he gives the Lord's Supper here and as he comes to bring it and, and explain it, it's not primarily a theological treaty for them. He actually wants to contrast what they've been doing with what actually took place and to refocus them to the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And in focusing on Christ and focusing on Christ's crucifixion and his work, it ultimately will again contribute to what? Unity within the church because there's a recognition of who you are. And I just want to point out before we go through this, and maybe I'm giving away the end, but that's okay. If you'll notice, this body is, which is what? For you. There's a unity there. And then he talks about the cup. It is the new covenant in my what? Blood. In other words, there's now a covenant community. There's somebody who is who is now in this community. And when you're covenanted together, you are what? Together, right? And so there's a unity that's coming through the Lord's Supper, as we have a proper focus on what Christ has done, and it's because what He has done on the cross that that unity can be had. So Paul begins this section, and he he really gives us a, a look, as we would say, into the history or the background of the Lord's Supper. And he starts in verse twenty-three. And he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now we're going to see really, he's divinely the the divine institution of the Lord's Supper. In other words, this is not something that Paul made up. He says, For I received it from the Lord. I received it from the Lord himself. Now you'll notice just this little word for at the beginning. He's coming off of the question, really, in verse 22. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this, I will not praise you. And this is why I'm now going to give you the Lord's Supper and remind you what it's all about because you guys have lost it. And he says, for I received this from the Lord, which I also delivered to you. So he says, I got the Lord's Supper and what I got, I received and I received it from the Lord himself. Now, some commentators will say to you, well, this just simply means that Paul heard the traditions. And so he's just really speaking about the idea that he received it from the Lord and the fact that he heard it from others. And so this is, you know, the Lord Jesus is guaranteeing this. But I would understand that when Paul says, I received this from the Lord, what he means is what? I actually received it from the Lord, I got it from the Lord himself. Paul uses this word in a couple of different places, even here in Corinthians in that way. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. he says, Now I made known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which I, which also you received, in which you also stand. And so the, it's the idea of the gospel is coming. And again, this is the same idea that Paul had in Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, For I... For I would, he says in chapter 1, verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And so Paul says, listen, I was was taught by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He talks in another place about being caught up into the heavens and he he was taught. So when Paul says, I learned from what? When I received it from the Lord Jesus Christ, or I received it from the Lord, what does he mean? I received it. Now, it's interesting because this, if we understand history correctly, 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels. So this is the first written account of the Lord's Supper that we have recorded, given to the church. Now, notice this. He says, that which I also delivered to you. Look at that little word, delivered, uh, past tense. In other words, Paul says, I've already given you this information. I've already told you about the Lord's Supper. I've already explained the Lord's Supper to you. In other words, you've heard this before. This isn't new to you. What I'm telling you is, is so that I can remind you of the purpose of the Lord's Supper It's not necessarily to give you a theological treaty on it, but to remind you of the purpose of it. And so like a good teacher, he calmly and patiently now repeats this to them in order to refocus the Lord's Supper for them. And so after the divine institution, we now see the traitors. the the traitor backdrop that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed now that's interesting all of the accounts speak of what in the night in which he was betrayed all the gospels speak of what Judas is betraying Christ Now, some have tried to say, well, well, actually the traitoring here and the word the word betrayed can be mean to be handed over. And it's really just a, a general handing over of Christ. In other words, he was handed over by 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 Judas. He was handed or even some say divinely he was handed over for by God to to be punished. But since it's in, it's in every single time that we come to the Lord's Supper, it seems to be pointing to what? Judas. To the fact that Judas betrayed Christ. He is the human instrument that was used by God to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's like Christ is set, set, setting up, as it were, the Lord's Supper with a reminder, first of all, in the night that he was betrayed, a historical event that took place as he reminds us that it was at the Passover Supper that Jesus was betrayed. It was that night where his disciples came together and they celebrated as it were redemption out of Egypt as they remembered that a lamb was sacrificed, blood was shed to save Israel out of Egypt. And now Jesus will take that and he will, he will transform it and he will make it into the first Lord's Supper and he will now remind them that instead of looking back to Exodus and coming out of Egypt, that Jesus Christ has, is now the last lamb that will be slain. He will be slain on Passover, on the Passover. He is the Passover lamb who will now pay the price for sin once for all and he is seated at the right hand of the Father And so Christ is now going to remind them in the Lord's Supper of his work. And we're reminded, even as we go to the glories of of the Lord's Supper, of the treacherous hatred of Judas against the backdrop of Christ's love. And really, Judas is a picture of all unbelievers. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is so much necessary for Christ to come and to die and to pay the price for sin against the backdrop of humanity's hatred. Now there are there are pastors at this point who will now say to you, speaking of the betrayal, make sure you're not like Judas. Make sure you're not like Judas Don't you betray the Lord Jesus Christ Every time you sin You betray the Lord Jesus Christ Do you want to be like Judas Now that preaches well That preaches well But I would suggest to you That it is completely unbiblical Now I want you to follow with me Because I want you to understand this A believer can never betray the Lord Jesus Christ A believer can never betray betray the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how so? Well, what did Judas do? Judas spent his life with the Lord Jesus Christ. He spent three and a half years following the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus Christ in all of his glory. He saw him doing miracles. He sat underneath his teaching. He saw his integrity. He saw his power. He saw all of those things. And yet Judas, what rejected believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He rejected believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas wanted a a physical kingdom and he wanted money and he wanted influence, but he did not want a savior. Now, if you're listening very carefully, does this not sound very much like the unpardonable sin? They had full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had his demonstration of him and they rejected him, contributed and they attributed it to Satan. And it was what? The unpardonable sin because they sinned against the Holy Spirit. Now listen, unbelief is sinning against the Holy Spirit because you are rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit about the Lord Jesus Christ. So putting it together then, only an unbeliever is capable of what? Betraying the Lord Jesus Christ, because only an unbeliever is capable of what? Rejecting and the Holy Spirit, saying what the Holy Spirit says about the Lord Jesus Christ is untrue, and therefore they commit the unpardonable sin of unbelief. So you see the difference between Judas and Peter, right? Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about the poster child, right? Here's a guy who is the leader of the disciples. And he denies the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, but he didn't do it privately. He did it publicly. He did it publicly. He did it spectacularly. He did it repeatedly and he got stronger in his denials. And you think, well, what's the difference between him and Judas? I want you to go back in the upper room just a little bit. What was Jesus doing for his disciples? He's washing their feet. Peter says, wash all of me, right? What does Jesus say? You've already been washed. You just have defilement. Peter was already a blood-bought believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Peter was disobedient, was he denying the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ? Was he rejecting him? No. He was being defiled in a momentary sin, right? And Peter repented and turned. Judas did what? He went out and hung himself. He didn't repent. He had worldly sorrow but not godly sorrow not to repentance and so you as a believer never have to worry about betraying the Lord Jesus Christ because you're incapable of it if you've already been chosen by him for salvation if he guaranteed to keep you to the end then how on earth could you ever muster on your own strength the ability to what To reject belief in him. You can't. That's the mark of a believer. And so Paul. As he starts this. Really this background. He shows really the necessity. Of the what? Sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's Judas. Someone who's had all of the light. Demonstrating his hatred. For our Lord Jesus Christ. And really, we would say he was divisive, right? He was divisive. He separated himself from from the rest. Here's one thing I want want you to just put in the back of your mind. They started the Lord's Supper, but John tells us that what? Judas went out. Judas went out. He started the Passover feast. But Judas was not there in the end. Judas was not taking communion with the rest. He had gone out to get stuff for the Passover, right? The next thing we see him, he's coming back with what? The Pharisees and the Roman guards. So please, don't put an unbeliever in the Lord's Supper. That didn't happen, and it shouldn't happen, right? The Lord's Supper is for believers, That was just an aside. Then it says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we look at the significance of the bread. He said he took bread. The word for bread here really is the word could be translated loaf. Loaf a loaf. He took a loaf of bread. He says, when he had given thanks, it's where we get the English translated Greek word Eucharist. It is the name some Christians use to refer to the Lord's Supper. So notice this. He gave thanks for the bread. Some people say he blessed the bread. No, the bread was fine. He was giving thanks to God for the bread. So when we, when, we give, when we ask a blessing at the meal, we're not asking God to somehow make that, the food okay, right? It won't cover up your bad cooking. What we're asking for is we're, we're actually giving thanks that we have food to eat, right? So we're not blessing it. We're not, there's not something mystical that's happening to the bread or to the food that we're eating. We're simply giving thanks for it. And so it says that Christ gave thanks for the bread and then he broke it. He broke it. So what is the significance of breaking the bread? Some people say, I know what it is. This is a demonstration of Christ's body being broken for us on the cross. Well, we know this, that this, this is his body broken for you is not in the best manuscripts. It was added later on. But we also know that his body was not broken. His body was not broken. David predicted he will keep all his bones. None of them will be broken. Psalm thirty-four twenty. John 19.36 says, Not a bone of, of him shall be broken. It was, it came, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. In other words, Christ's body wasn't broken. He was beat up pretty good. We know that. But his body wasn't broken. So what is the significance then of Christ breaking the bread? All right, I'll tell you. The breaking of the bread signified what? It speaks of unity. Our unity in Christ. We are all partaking of the same loaf. We are together in Christ. And so they were united in Christ as they come together to take the Lord's table. This bread not only reminds us of Christ's sinless body, which was given for us in grace, it also reminds us that we are alive spiritually because of the body of Christ which rose from the dead. Each time we pass the bread among ourselves and partake it, we are reminding ourselves that Christ is our life. We are united in Christ. He is the only one for whom we live. I've been crucified with Christ is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so he was, he was signifying that they were what all in Christ. And so all of us who are in Christ, all of us are what together, united in him. We have our life in Christ. And he said, and this is my body, which is for you. Now, some people have said, well, what does he mean? This is my body. This is my body. Some have said, well, you know what? We're actually literally eating the body of Christ when we come together. It's called transubstantiation. Others say, well, well, not exactly, it's that the body of Christ is under, in, with, and under the bread and the wine on the table. Which I still have not really figured out. But the idea is this. That we're actually partaking of the body of Christ, His physical body is there. But there's a couple problems with that. First of all, as Christ is giving the Lord's Supper, as, he, as he's giving it here, where is he? He's not dead yet. He's standing there alive. Right? And he's giving them what? Bread and wine. They are symbols of what? Of his body and blood. So it's pretty hard for his body to be there when he's what? Still alive. Now, you can see where they might get this from in John six fifty three, 53 Jesus said to them truly I say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in yourselves he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will rise him, raise him up on that day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him whoa that sounds pretty gruesome really but maybe 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 it is. Well what did Jesus say to his disciples in the context in verse 63 it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing the words i have spoken to you are spirit and are what life. In other words i'm speaking symbolically they're spiritual But there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who was that would betray him. In other words, spirit is truth. Spirit is life. In other words, it's not, it's not the physical elements that is that's going on. It is a recognition of what? What Jesus' blood and body represent. So when we speak then of the body of Christ, this is my body, which is for you. What are we actually thinking about? Now, for most of us, we automatically want to go to this place where we say, "It's speaking of his physical body. It's speaking of his physical body. And so we we, we have this idea that we sit there and we think about all of the suffering that he went through physically. And that's actually appropriate. It's just incomplete because when we speak of christ's body we are not just speaking of his physical body alone we are speaking of his humanness we are think we are speaking about everything that he did and accomplished here on earth we're talking about his work we're talking about a perfect human life lived and so this is why we would we would automatically say this cannot be just his physical presence in the bread because his body represents his whole person. This was the thought in Jew. This was the idea in Jewish thought that the body represented all that the person was. So when we celebrate the body of Christ, we're not just celebrating the fact that he physically died. We are celebrating the fact of his humanness and everything that he accomplished, living a perfect life on our account as we celebrate the lord's supper so that broadens that perspective a little bit and we recognize it cannot be just the fact that it's just the physical body and it can't be that 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 somehow that the body and blood of christ come to bear in in the elements because they are just a symbol and his body is a symbol not just of his physical body but of his humanness right he had to be he had to be human To be a sacrifice for us. He had to have everything that is. uh, What's the word? Everything that is is necessary to be human. Now his experience wasn't identical to yours. He didn't have a sin nature. Right? But whatever he had. Whatever he came and did. God says that was representative of of what humanity was. And so he says, when we come then, this is my body, which is for you. He's saying, I'm laying down my body, my physical body, but I am giving you my life. I'm giving you a perfect life lived. I'm giving it for you. Sweet words. He speaks them to his disciples, the 11 that are left. And he speaks them to all believers. Now I did this, what for you. I gave you my perfect life. I gave you my perfect righteousness. I laid down my life for you. I suffered and died for you in a human body. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. He will say that again. As often as you drink it. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I would see this as an imperative. You must do this. Do it. In other words, communion must be done. And do this. In remembrance of me. Now it's interesting and I think we talked about this several months ago but the Jewish idea of remembrance isn't just to, to kind of look back on some facts if we actually look at the, at the Jewish Passover they, bought, they brought the past into the present right their supper they ate the bitter herbs they brought the lamb they did everything that was done in the original exodus in the original Passover they celebrated it And they wanted to experience it. They wanted to have that sensory look into what had happened in the past. And the idea was to go back and to remember in depth. And in experience to remember that God had delivered them out of bondage and slavery. And so they went to the past, brought it to the present to remind themselves of what God had done. And I want to put this in your mind. They weren't just celebrating, they weren't celebrating the death of the lamb as much as they were celebrating what was produced by that, which was deliverance. And remember, God had promised Israel that he would bring them out of Egypt after 400 years. And so as they look back, not only did they see that God saved them and they celebrated the fact that God had delivered them, but they also celebrated the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God who keeps his promises. And so as, they, as we come to remember him then, we are, we are going back, remembering what Christ, how he lived, how he died, what he has done for us. remembering that he keeps his promises. In other words, if he died for us to save us, then we have what that salvation. He says in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So in the same way he took it, the cup it's apparently he gave thanks for the cup also, this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me he says this is the new covenant in my blood now we're we're hearing echoes aren't we again from exodus where the old test the old covenant was brought in with blood Remember, Moses sprinkled the people. And here again, we hear the the, the echoes of the promise of Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And he goes on to say that he will give them what? A new heart. And take out their heart of stone and he will give them a heart of flesh. And Jesus says, it's here now. I am setting the basis of the blessings of the new covenant right here in my death. I'm providing a new way. The new here is not new in new in is not new in time, but new in kind. There's a new covenant that is replacing the old covenant. The old covenant has gotten to that point where it is worn out. It has gotten to the point where it is obsolete. There's no longer a need to sacrifice animals as a picture of Christ's redemption because it has now been paid once and all for all in, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he says this new covenant has been inaugurated. This new co- covenant now is, is for all who are what? In the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this, co- this covenant is now made Available for all who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a new covenant, a new community. He talks in Ephesians there about the Jew and Gentile being put into this new thing, the church, a new in kind. And we are held together now by the covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ. The old covenant was co signed, we could say. There was an agreement between God and Israel that Israel, if they obeyed, would be blessed. If they were if they disobeyed they were be cursed. But this covenant is is signed once by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his blood. It is guaranteed by him. And so the blessings that come with this, the salvation that comes with this, are based upon his work and his work alone. And so Christ says, I am making a new covenant. I am, I am shedding my blood, blood that number one needs to be shed because life is in the blood. I need, to, I need to give my life because I have to die. And my blood covers the sin of all who believe. Now, he's not saying there's something mystical and there's something, you know, in the chemistry of Christ's literal, physical blood. But what he's saying is, is, is that the fact that he died and shed his blood, though he didn't shed it all on the cross, he certainly shed it while he was being beaten and tortured. He's saying that that blood that he shed is representative of the life that he lived, is dying a human life. And representative of his covering of sin. And so he says. Here's the new covenant in my blood. I have now provided a new way to God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can now come into his presence. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to go through the high priest. You have a new high priest. And now you are able to go into the presence of God. Because you have been covered by the blood. And again, you'll notice if this is the new covenant and you're covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are what? In that community. And so again, there's that call to unity and that call to be together. And a call then to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. then we see the significance of the practice for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, so every time you do this again, there's no frequency given here. He just says, when, as, what as often as you eat and drink this bread, this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so he says, there's a couple things that are taking place here. Number one, you are what? proclaiming the Lord's death. In other words, you declare that the Lord, has, that Lord Jesus Christ has died. And as we go through the elements and we see that the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the necessity of Christ becoming, of God becoming man and Christ living a perfect life and that he paid the price for sin, we declare the gospel. We declare it first to ourselves that we are the redeemed and we also proclaim it to the world and we say to them, look, this is what Jesus Christ has done. And as they look at us celebrating the Lord's Supper, they are witness to because every time we come, we go through the gospel. Jesus Christ came to earth, right? Died, became a human being, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay the sin for all who would believe in his sac- perfect sacrifice, That is the gospel we're proclaiming. But we're not quite done because we got to get to the end. And he says what? You proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. In other words, he's risen, right? The implication is if he's coming again, he must be risen because if he died, he must be risen because he's coming back. And so now we proclaim it. There's, a, there's an end date until he comes. He's coming again. He's coming back for us. And so we have hope. In other words, everything that Christ has promised to us in the gospel will ultimately lead to what his return and us seeing him again. And so now we have hope for the future. We have hope that we will persevere. We have hope that as we live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, that it will be worth it, that we will see him again. That it's all not for naught. And I will say this, every time it talks about us looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture, it always brings us back, he who has this hope, what purifies himself. And so the Lord's Supper should be a call for us to live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, to to live in righteousness, to be obedient to him. And remembering that God is a God who keeps his promises and that we will see him again, that we should be encouraged and empowered to live out the gospel in our own lives until he comes. There's just so much here. There's just so much here. And so the Lord's Supper becomes about what Jesus Christ has done. And how he has saved us. How he has re- bought us back from sin and death. And that he's coming again and that he will, we will see him again. And that we are encouraged to live in obedience to what we've been saved to. And to forsake what we have been saved from. And so for the Corinthians, if we put it back into context here, how could they make this about them? How could they make divisions in the church when it's clear that the celebrating of the Lord Jesus Christ is about what he has accomplished for us? And that there is nothing that has happened in salvation that is something that sets us above one another. There is no elitism Christ is the one who came. Christ is the one who died. Christ is one who accomplished righteousness before God. It was God who called us to salvation. It is God who gave us a new heart. It is God who preserves us. It will be God who will keep us till he comes again. How can there be elitism? How can there be division in the body? How can we be divided when we come to the Lord's Supper? Because it's not about who we are. It's about who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. May we always come to the Lord's table in a way that is honoring our Lord Jesus Christ. It is about him. It is about what he has done. And may he receive all the honor, glory, and praise. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder this morning of what you have done on our behalf. We just want to praise and honor our Lord Jesus Christ, who because of love came and was willing to become in the form of a man, become a servant to submit to, the, to death, even the death on the cross. That he would give his perfect life lived. That he would shed his blood. That we too might be restored to our heavenly father. And that he might be the just and the justifier. So we praise you and give all glory to our Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. May we never exalt ourselves. But may we always exalt our Lord Jesus Christ I pray in your name. Amen.